I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. If somebody was going to make the new ESPN for, for, for lack of a better kind of simple, easy comp, like what would that look like? Would that be a cable channel running 24 hours, showing live games, having a bunch of people talking about trades all day? Um, if that's not resonating with this next generation, who we talked talked about was different. We followed kind of these athletes right before the, be, they became pro on their journey. We, we didn't really do a lot of criticism. We never ranked them. We never talked about trades. We never trashed athletes. Wow. Um, we just had a different perspective that I think we learned from partnering with our audience that really resonated with them. I am so pumped to welcome to Yank Speaks, my friend, uh, co-founder and CEO of Overtime, Dan Porter. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Dan, we go way back, you and I. Uh, you've had an incredible career. The thing that people might have had uh, on their phones that they'd be most familiar with is probably Draw Something. <laughs> they remember Draw Something. You were the man behind Draw Something. Uh, which was uh, a phenomenon, it, you know, uh, tens of millions of people were uh, teaming up with their friends to, to play. Um, we, but you and I were uh, colleagues at Venture for America when I, I was trying to enlist you to help because you were the first president of Teach for America. And I know there must be a lot of people here who uh, know TFAers or have been part of Teach for America. Um, and that was back in like the early 90s. Uh, how the heck does one become the first president of Teach for America? Yes. So before we made Draw Something, we were just a scrappy mobile games company. And I think um, Mary Park introduced us and you came to our office on Crosby Street, which was jammed full of people and said you had this idea that you wanted to do like Teach for America, but for entrepreneurship. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but it sounds like a terrible idea and you should never do it. Uh, and then you proved me totally wrong. And so uh, I joined the board and we worked there for three years. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a crazy journey. I, uh, I graduated from college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up kind of working in the music industry briefly because I had been a professional musician and then had a friend uh, from college who was early at, at Teach for America. And in between that time, I had actually taught public school in Brooklyn, un unrelated to Teach for America, just was kind of like in my early 20s, bouncing around looking for something to do uh, that I thought would be interesting and have some meaning. Uh, and he said, you should come work with us at Teach for America. I mean, you've already taught for a year. And I was thinking, well, one year is really not very much teaching. But... I joined and uh, did a little bit of everything because in the beginning, and I'm sure it was like that with VFA, everybody kind of did a little bit of everything. And eventually I kind of found my way in the recruitment and selection side and ended up building the whole initial recruitment process. Uh, and really it was my first taste of entrepreneurship because we could do what we wanted. And we decided we wanted to make people write their essay in person in front of us because we felt like people were what? getting other people to write their essays and help them. Uh, and we were successful and we had the kind of biggest application pool ever. And I had done a bunch of things. And I think at that time, Wendy kind of wanted to be more chairperson and, and do a bunch of other things and potentially launch offshoots of Teach for America. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be chosen to be the president of Teach for America four years into my journey there. Wow. So Wendy Kopp, uh, the founder of Teach for America, um, uh, and uh, did you guys know each other from school? Is that right? I think you guys both went to the same college. We both went to Princeton. I, I knew who she was because uh, she uh, dated somebody who was in my eating club, but I, I wasn't friends with her. I, di I didn't really know her. 
Um, and it's funny, I was thinking about Wendy today because I give her a lot of credit for this kind of idea, this thing that she said early on that she probably doesn't even know how much I influenced me and a lot of other people, which was in the very beginning of Teach for America, I remember that the kind of funders or investors, if you want to call them that, said, you know, why don't you take 50 people into Teach for America and figure out if it's going to work and work out the kinks. And Wendy said, if we take 50 people, nobody will ever care about Teach for America. And so we took 500 people. Uh, and it was crazy, but ultimately she was right. And even with 500 people, people didn't really know or care. And I think in 92 or 93, there was a New York Times article and people started to figure it out. But for years, I would tell people I had worked at Teach for America and they didn't know what it was. But I think in a, in a way, Wendy was right. Like she made a big bet and she had to do something that people would care about. And, you know, flash forward to, to what you were saying, like I'm as part of overtime, we're starting our own basketball league and people was like, oh, you could take three or four athletes and figure it out. And in the back of my head is like, is anybody going to care unless we take 25 athletes and try to figure it out? So I think that kind of mantra and that approach has had a big influence on me throughout my career. Uh, well, certainly Teach for America is the uh, biggest example of a nonprofit that is uh, reach scale touched at this point, I would say millions of lives. Um, and for me, when I started Venture for America, the first thing I did was buy Wendy's book <laughs> about how she started Teach for America. Um, so if you're an aspiring entrepreneur out there, uh, books are good. If you can find uh, an entrepreneur who did something similar and then you, you read their book, you'll get a lot from it. Um, Dan Porter shows up in that book. And so then I, I <laughs> when I was offered an introduction to you, I was like, oh my gosh, like one of the people that built this thing. Like, I totally want uh, to meet you and find out more. Um, I do remember how dubious you were at that first meeting, but then, <laughs> but then, and that's another lesson for any aspiring entrepreneur out there is that, look, someone can not be into it initially, but if you do the work and uh, you demonstrate that you're serious and are making progress, uh, they can come back around. So, uh, you know, like, no isn't always no though i'm not sure you actually said the word no but it, i think you might have said this is a terrible idea <laughs> yeah I, I probably did but but i will say i loved being on the venture for america board because there were kind of pattern recognitions like we made so many mistakes early on in teach for america because we just didn't know and we didn't have a blueprint and i remember we were talking about supporting the core members at vfa and various cohorts and should you have support at the local level or the national level and, you know, there were lots of things where there were other people on the board who added more value than I did, but there were definitely things where I was like, oh my God, we dealt with that and we made mistakes and we figured that out. And I was like very excited to raise my hand and say like, I, I can tell you from experience, this is, this is something that we should do at VFA without having to overthink it and you should learn from our mistakes. And anytime you spoke, everyone just listened because you had the most direct experience <laughs> of any of us. I was like, Dan said that we should look at it this way, so we should probably do what he says. Uh, so after Teach for America, so at this point, you're in your like mid to late 20s, and then you pivot to a business career. And you work for Richard Branson, who now I think might be the first person to go into space uh, commercially. <laughs> just on his yeah, own. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say as an aside, like, I remember that when I worked at Virgin, which was, I think, 15 years ago, we had a bring your kids to work day, like people used to love to do that. And I remember because in the picture, my kids are little. And now, you know, one of my kids is a college graduate. And there's a model of the Virgin Galactic kind of ship and everything else like that. So it seems like it's like, we're just going to space, but 15 years ago, we were working on Virgin Galactic and there were little models of spaceship. Like, so it's been so long, it feels compressed, but um, it's been a very, very long journey. And so I don't know, what is he, 70 now? So he was my age, he was 55 when he started thinking about wanting to do that. There's another lesson there, gosh. Uh, I met Richard briefly uh, and even my brief contact with him led me to think that he's one of the more sane uh, moguls. <laughs> he actually seemed very down to earth and, and with it, which is a funny 
uh, adjective to use for someone who literally just went into space. But he, <laughs> but, um, but he, he struck me as like a really positive, uh, effusive leader. Um, did you have that kind of experience with him? Like how closely did you work with him? Yeah, I, I think every every kind of CEO or founder has a different skill set. I would say for Richards, he's very charismatic. He's very interpersonally warm. I remember we went on one of the early things that I did is we went on a, a trip to Toronto where Virgin Mobile had, you know, their office. And that was kind of the cell phone provider that eventually Sprint bought. And uh, he went and he talked to essentially the call center at the at the Virgin Mobile place. So it was a bunch of people who were, you know, working in customer support. And he was so funny and approachable and warm that like literally like they wanted to go up and hug him afterwards. And you've got very huggable. He kind of has like a teddy bear. Yeah. You've got people who lead by fear. You've got people who are brilliant, but interpersonally not strong. You've got people who are amazing at numbers. You know, you've got people who are engineering geniuses. And his was just this kind of natural people skill and charisma um, that you would ultimately see like a real ability, I think, to put people at ease. And he always loved kind of his his marketing approach was stunts, right? He had all those kind of virgin Atlantic versus, you know, B- British Airways types of stunts and stuff like that. I think he was the original pre-internet person, you know, who really understood how you could make a splash. And I think at one point we were going to launch a casino in Vegas or a hotel maybe in Vegas and he agreed to bungee cord off the top of the building that we were going to turn into and I mean he had to be in his 60s at that point and I think he actually bounced into the side of the building and ripped up his pants and stuff like that I was thinking (laughs) there's zero chance that I would ever personally do that but that was like part of his I think part of his energy and his up for everything and you know as as any leader you you hope that that kind of then inspires all the people who work kind of all throughout your organization to take that type of mindset too he did have a real magnetism to him when i when i met him um and and it it was fun experiencing it so you went from virgin uh was that straight then to omg pop and i remember meeting you and the, the crowd of uh people in crosby street who were working on the games and when I came and visited, you guys hadn't come up with draw something yet. Like I, and that there was a, a sense that you really had uh, struck gold or had lightning in a bottle or, or whatever metaphor you want to use where draw something was concerned. Um, did that level of virality and success take you by surprise uh, when it happened? Uh, it did. I, I would say that. So so to go back one thing, kind of when I left almost nine years working in nonprofit and education, I decided, I told my wife jokingly that I wanted to be a capitalist. Uh, it was really hard to make that transition. Um, and I'm sure there are people who are watching or listening who may have experienced that because I think that the view was like, oh, you worked in nonprofit, like you don't know anything about money, you have ripped jeans, you have some save the world mentality. When in fact, you know, there, there's a, in the Venn diagram, there's a tremendous number of attributes where there's overlap with for profit. And I thought even about going to business school because I just couldn't get people to kind of take Thank me you seriously. And it was really frustrating. And I look, I had been the president of Teach for America. I'd managed all of those people. Uh, And I ended up kind of, you know, talking my way into a small investment banking firm where I didn't know anything about finance and doing that for two years and then moving to the West Coast and with one of my college roommates being involved in the start of TicketWeb, which was sold the first concert tickets on the internet, kind of while Ticketmaster was still selling them via kind of telephone and going to Tower Records. And eventually we turned that into a business and sold that to uh, Ticketmaster for $40 million. And all of a sudden, like nobody ever asked me, you know, why are you incompetent because you worked at nonprofit before? Uh, So that was like, that was kind of my transition point and from there, I kind of ended up kind of coming back, eventually working for Richard. And while I was working at Virgin, there was this movement to say, 
Virgin started out and it was really cool because Richard owned a record label. Like, you know, rock and roll was cool. And then he signed Janet Jackson and then he did all these things. And I think there was a whole nother generation that kind of forgot what was cool about Virgin um, because they were just too young for when the music was part of the business. And so I launched all these music festivals uh, in 2005, 2006 in the United States and Canada. And then I started kind of reading at that time you know, people would say the video game industry is bigger than the film industry. It's bigger than the music industry. And I just started thinking like, oh my God, is video games like the new rock and roll? Is that the thing everyone's going to do? And kind of through luck, I ended up uh, meeting and being introduced to Charles Foreman, who was the original founder of OMG Pop. At that time, it was called I'm in Like With You. Um, and I just didn't understand anything that he was saying. I didn't understand his website. And I was like, oh, this is probably what they mean. And this is the future. So when I signed on, you know, there was, there were seven people. It was a small office that was above a combination Taco Bell, Dunkin' Donuts. So whatever smell you had could be changed in the room. And there was actually no cell service in the little office on, on I think, 36th Street. And so immediately we needed to raise money, but I couldn't take any calls from investors because we couldn't get cell service in the little office. So I would go downstairs when it was freezing cold and like try to call people. And eventually, you know, Charles was very talented and he saw a lot of openings that other people hadn't seen. Um, but we hit this point that's very interesting in startups where we were successful like we had over a million users, but we weren't like insanely successful. So we didn't fail. Like we had loyal users. We had, I mean, four to five hours, what they called time on site. Um, but we weren't a billion dollar business. We were kind of stuck in the middle. Um, and that's tough because you're not, things aren't going badly, but you're not also having explosive growth. Uh, and all of a sudden Farmville came out and Zynga figured out some way to kind of crack Facebook and they had explosive growth. And if we had one, two, three million users, they had a hundred million users. Um, and then we kind of missed that. Like we weren't paying attention to Facebook style games. It wasn't what we did. Um, and then all of a sudden the iPhone came out and we, we didn't make Angry Birds and we didn't make Fruit Ninja. We didn't make any of those early games. And so everyone was like, wow, you guys were on the web and you missed Facebook and you missed mobile. Um, but the reality is, is like you can still make a hit game on mobile. Like there's no missing mobile like that. There's so much change. And obviously the iPhones changed so much. Um, and so we kind of took a big shot and made this game. But we were making four other games at the same time as we made Draw Something. So we really had no idea. It was, it was our own IP because we had made a web version and ultimately a Facebook version of the, of the same game. It was called Draw My Thing, which we thought was a little risque. So we simplified it for, uh, for, for the App Store. And uh, we just didn't have any idea. And when we released the game, um, it kind of climbed the charts and then it fell down the charts. And so we got to like 25 on the App Store and we were like, well, I guess that was our big shot. Um, and then two of our software developers, uh, Chris and, and Jason said, we, they, we think there might be something wrong with the game. And they came into the office on a Friday and they didn't leave till Monday. Um, and they reconfigured the entire back end of the game. And what had happened was the game was actually enormously popular, but we had made some mistakes in, in, in this development of software. It was just crashing for everyone. And the second that they kind of fixed that and we got that build in the App Store, the game just blew up. And I think at its height, it was, you know, millions of downloads per day. Like we had a little graph that showed how many people were downloading it. And the numbers would go so fast that it was basically broken. Um, and I remember the other thing was everyone was like, we've got to get some influencers to support the game. And somebody's like, oh, I know somebody who plays pro football and I have a friend who does this. And I was 100% unsuccessful at reaching any influencer to talk about the game. But what ended up happening was everybody like the cast of the Jersey Shore, Miley Cyrus, Ryan Seacrest, like these people were playing the game anyway because it was in the app store and they all started 
tweeting about it, talking about it on Facebook and Instagram. People were like, your influencer strategy is amazing. I was like, I wish I had anything to do with that. But it was just- You were like, of, yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it, it just kind of crossed over into culture and that, that, that kind of- that kind of amplified it. And I think at its height, I don't know, 24, 25 million people a day uh, were were playing the game. And it was just, it was gigantic. It was a total whirlwind. And the other story is I remember the year before we had gone to the Game Developer Conference in San Francisco, which is, you know, essentially a trade show for game developers. Um, nobody really cared about us. Nobody knew who we were. Um, and you know, whatever I sat in the back and listened to successful people talk about how to be successful in games. And as we went this time, the game had started to blown up and like everybody was talking about us. People were coming up to me and it was so surreal within the course of 12 months to be like somebody who was in the audience. And then all of a sudden to walk in and people were like, oh, that's that, those, those guys from OMG pop. Like it, it is it, I just, I, I don't think we expected it. And I think that, but it was fun and it was great. And everybody wanted to meet with us and they wanted to know what the special sauce was. And I'm not even sure any of us could tell you what the special sauce is. Like things came together and we made a good game based, a great game based on everything we had learned in the, you know, making all of these other games. But it was a really, it was a very surreal journey, I'm sure. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Well, there's another lesson there, which is how many games do you think that your team had worked on prior to draw something becoming a hit? Because it sounds like I think, 44, I think 44 games we had made before that hit. Yeah, so game number 45 ended up being the, the thing that uh, struck gold. Um, and I've had that experience, too, of being in a conference uh, 12 months ago when uh, no one cares about you. And then 12 months later, like uh, where uh, everyone tries to talk to you on the presidential. <laughs> it's like I, I showed up to Iowa in 2018 and it was like, who the heck is that guy? And then like by the time 2019 rolled around, uh, you know, uh, like I, I had a lot of energy around me. Um, so that that's a really fun, somewhat surreal experience. Yeah. The thing the thing I'll say also like that's amazing about the game business is, and I think I took some way, it's like a startup within a startup, right? Every game is like making a mini startup. You don't is how are you gonna launch? Who's gonna use it? Is it gonna hit or not? And that idea of being in a in a startup where like you're trying to do one thing, um, and maybe it hits or isn't, is amazing. But like being in a startup where you're launching all these kind of mini startups, these mini aspects of it out of there um, is really is is incredibly exciting. And even if you think about where we are now with overtime, you know, we're on the media side, we have this league, you know, we're, we're about to do a bunch of stuff in the name image likeness, like we're constantly launching stuff. 
And I think I, I really got energized and, and almost learned a lot about that from being in the game business. So there must have been any number of games where you thought to yourself, ooh, I've got a really great feeling about this one. Game number 17 <laughs> is, is the one, and then it goes nowhere. Um, like, did, did you have your heart broken any number of times where you were like, ooh, I've got a special feeling about this one? And then does, does that end up um, uh, hardening you in a positive way where, like, you know, you're, you were able to cut your losses even on projects that you had high hopes for? It's a good question. I, look, we, we made games, ga games that I had nothing to do with that, that uh, Charles and Drew and all these talented game developers made at OMG Pop that were so fun. Like literally I would play them, my kids would play them. I mean, we had this game Baluno that was insanely fun. And the challenge is there's, there's two aspects to anything essentially that you make as a startup. And one is essentially that thing you're making, we'll call it content or product. And the other is essentially distribution. And, and in the case of those, like we made these fun games, but there was no natural form of distribution. Like we could have done paid marketing for them, but there was nothing that drove them to be any bigger. We would drop them into the million people on our site and they'd be like, this is the greatest game I've ever seen. But the million and first person would never see it. Um, and so you constantly start to think about how do I take the distribution and the marketing part of, of my game and how do I put it actually into my product? You know, how do I make something that's not only fun, but by nature shareable? And, and, and Farmville actually was a very good example of that early on. It was a little heavy handed, but there were things you couldn't do unless you invited your friends on Facebook to do them. And, and by nature, the distribution was in that. And so when we made you know, draw something and we knew that we wanted you to be able to play with your friends and we wanted it to be distributed. And early on, I remember even before it blew up, friends of mine would say, people I haven't like talked to in five years are like hitting me up on Gchat and on AIM and telling me, have you seen this game? Will you play it with me? And I knew that I knew the game was fun, but then you saw that the natural distribution was in there. And so, as I said before, whether it was people talking about it on social or whatever, we always had, we had a lot of fun games, but we had never really cracked into what the natural distribution cycle was. And when those two came together, that, that was really, the, that was gold. So at, at, at this point, then uh, the company is the hottest uh, company around and uh, you get bought by Zynga uh, and then you serve as uh, a Zynga executive for a period um, no, you, you'd already been part of successful acquisitions, but I feel like that one was still a very big deal um, because that this was at the peak of uh, the market and Zynga was one of the hottest companies around at the time. Yeah, so uh, it, it, was, it was known also because I think they closed the deal in nine days. So they had a day law firm and a night law firm so that they could work 24 hours I have not doing, heard of this, but it, on it's doing, very, very high urgency. <laughs> on, doing, on doing the deal. And, and look, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that companies get bought and companies get sold. And not only were we incredibly successful at that time, but our user base was so big that every other player, Zynga, Electronic Arts, they were actually seeing their user numbers go down because users were stopping playing wow. other games and coming to play our game. And so I, I, always, I always try to tell the people I work with now, like companies buy other companies. You, you sit there and you think, my company is amazing. Like people should buy it because we, we're, we're awesome. And the, the rationale for other companies are things you don't understand. Either in the case of a Zynga, like they needed to aggressively move from essentially web-based games to mobile games. In the case of uh, an electronic arts, they needed to move from kind of console games to casual games. Like they all had pressures as companies. And on the market, we, had, we were actually had been offered more money by two Japanese game companies that were looking to crack into the United States. So they all had different rationales. It didn't mean that our game and our company wasn't awesome, but they had different things things driving them. And it was a very competitive process. Um, 
And then it happened rather quickly. And, and at the time that we sold, we also had term sheets to raise, you know, 50 to $100 million and build out a really big business from there, which was also interesting. And I remember I walked into the conference room with a couple of the key guys who had been there for four or five years, you know, since we were, you know, in that small seven person office. And I said, hey, we have this offer to sell this comp to buy the company. And we also have offer to keep going and build something bigger. What do you guys want to do? And they were like, we've been at this for five years. Like, we, we don't have a ton of money. Like, we, we, we want to sell. Like, we, we want to, A, be able to capitalize on everything. And B, like, we just kind of want to make games. Like, because if you take the $50 million, now you've got HR and you've got legal and you've got all of these other things. Why not use all the things our partner has and we can just be in the place to do what we do best. We can still be a 40, 50 person company. We don't have to be a 500 person company to do that. And even though I was the CEO and then there was a board above me, it, it was clear that that was the will of the people. Um, and that, that was really important to me. And so that's what we ended up doing. Oh, there's another important lesson there too, because I think a lot of CEOs would have been like, huh, like what do I think? <laughs> uh, but the, I mean, the lifeblood of that kind of company is the uh, people uh, creating. Uh, and, you know, if, if they uh, wanted to sell, then I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I'm sure it was the right thing to do. So you started your career as a school teacher and then you worked in a nonprofit um, and you just talked about how you had a really hard time breaking in. You, you uh, talked your way into a business position and then you moved out west with a friend and started a company. That's like a very, very dramatic decision uh, at that point. Uh, you know, was there, um, was there a lot of uh, struggle when you and your friend were living out west trying to make a new company work? Like, and, and one of the things I love talking about is how hard it is to start a company just you know in general um I, my first company did not work out it, it was a, a flop um and so i ended up working at another startup um when you and your friend moved out west was that uh was that something that uh felt like it was going to work the whole time or were there times when you were like we don't know what we're doing so he he actually already lived in the Bay Area, so I moved out to join him. I was actually married already to Melanie, and I had uh, a baby. Um, so and but that you know it was him and me and a couple of other people. Um, it was a big, it was a big risk, and we were small and. Every deal, like when you're small, is potentially transformative, and then it turns out that it's not transformative, and you're kind of on to the next deal. But I, I think that my my mindset was always not will it work, but like how do we keep moving so that we make it work? Like we've been given this hand, which is Maybe somebody's given us a little bit of money. We have some software. We have a market opportunity. And if it doesn't work, maybe it's because we just had our head in the sand and we didn't move fast enough to figure out where those opportunities are. And, and, and it's funny because, look, we were in essentially the concert ticketing business and we made a couple of strategic decisions that were really smart. You know, there were there I think there were four competitors in the market and they immediately tried to sign up people all over the United States. We actually only signed up people in the San Francisco area. And so we were highly concentrated. And in a way, we were much smaller than our competitors, and they were actually raising more money. But our ability to essentially support and learn from those customers was very high because anybody could essentially drive you know, there in 20 minutes and figure it out. Um, and we actually got critical mass. And I remember we came back to New York and they were like, oh, you were those guys who were huge in, in, in San Francisco. Everybody knows about you. And everyone else was struggling to support, you know, somebody in Chicago and somebody else. And, and so eventually we, we, we kind of grew there. Um, and I remember second thing is that we got approached by a golf company and they said, this is like selling tickets is like tea times. And we were like, oh, golf is huge. You know, we should really build a bigger business here and support tea times and, you know, really take advantage of everything our software could do. And we ultimately ended up not doing that and I think staying focused. But like they're all a product of a lot of small decisions 
Um, and ultimately, you just have to make a majority right decisions um, of those. But there's a lot of up and downs. You know, my the person with whom I, you know, I, I was involved in starting the company was my college roommate for three years. We got along. Then we didn't get along. Then he oh, left no. the company. And then, oh, you no. know, so there's like all, all kinds of stuff that, that ends up, uh, that ends up happening along the process. Um, but I knew like whatever I had to, I'd been dealt a hand and I had to make as much of that hand as I could. And that to me, like there were no, there was no option of, of not being successful. I was just like, we are just going to figure this out. And I know that probably sounds kind of wimpy or lame, but I was just like, you know, it's, it's, it's on us. If we fail to make something that people like, it's because we didn't do a good enough job listening to people. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So how old were you at this time? It sounds like you were a newlywed uh I was, uh, I was 32, 33. Yeah, I was 31 when I became the head of a uh, company and I had the same attitude, which is like, I'm going to make this work. And in part, because when you're at that stage, I'd had, in my case, I'd started a company that flopped um, when I was 25 and then worked for a series of companies, including with our mutual friend, Mary Park, um, that, uh, that didn't succeed. <laughs> And so by the time I was 31 and, and the head of a company, uh, I thought I am going to make this work. Like there's no choice but to make this work. And, and we had things to work with. We had tools to your point. Um, and so you made decisions. And as long as you made more good decisions than bad, but there was a very important lesson in what you're describing, which is it sounds like you did something um, unusual in the market at the time, which was to focus on a particular region and then nail it to a point where you had high density and probably, I assume, like good word of mouth and reputation um, in that market. Uh, and that's going to be valuable in just about any context. Like if, if you've captured a market, maybe it's not as enormous as the markets that other people are chasing, uh, but someone's going to want to, to uh, take advantage of what you've built. Uh, and in, in your case, oh, uh, like TicketWeb was bought, not was it bought by Ticketmaster? Who's it bought by? It was bought by Ticketmaster. Uh, look at that. So Ticketmaster then eventually is like, oh, wow, these guys have figured it out. Um, how many years did that process take? Uh, it, it took, we sold in May of 2000. So it took about two and a half years. And, and, and I'll, say, I'll say, yeah, t- t- two things about it. One is that the nonprofit background kind of became my secret weapon because nonprofits are very oriented on solving a problem. Um, and, and that's why, like, you know, when you focus and you set out for VFA, we're going to create X number of jobs or whatever, you have a very driving focus. And so when, you know, when I was involved with TicketWeb, we were like, we're the little guy, the, the company started like almost every single ticketing company started because somebody bought a ticket from Ticketmaster and they were like, what is this crazy fee at the end of the ticket? And they got very 
you know, upset about and that. And I remember like, those, gonna, yeah, yeah. So, so there was this idea that like we were democratizing ticketing and we weren't going to have these crazy fees and we were for the people. Um, and that idea, it was very motivating. It attracted employees. It kept employees focused, but it wasn't dissimilar to almost like how you think about your mission as a nonprofit. And for me, that was a very natural transition. And, and, and that became, uh, you know, a skill set that I had developed in nonprofit that made a lot of sense uh, in the for-profit space. And then when Ticketmaster was interested in buying the company, a lot of companies were going public because it was the dot-com boom, right? So you'd have these companies that made zero dollars and went public and were worth tons of money. And I remember I went and I met with <clears throat> three different investment banks that took all these companies public. I don't think any of them exist anymore. And they were telling me how they were going to take TicketWeb public and everything else like that. And in my heart of hearts, I was like, I don't think we're ever going to be that giant of a company. Like Ticketmaster is really big. And I think we have a really amazing niche that we're in. But I, I can't tell you that I believe we're a multi-billion dollar public company. And, and their message was like, everybody we take public is a billion dollar public company because you know, the markets are so crazy. And I was just like, I just don't, I can't do this, honestly, um, because I'm not really sure that that's the right end game. Whereas I knew that as soon as bigger companies were interested, that made a lot of sense. You know, they serve big venues, we serve small venues. They were still using traditional ticketing systems that built out the ticket. We were using the internet. Um, and so, in theory, we probably could have made a lot more money if we had gone public, been worth billions of dollars, sold all of our shares, and then eventually crashed down. But it just didn't, it didn't seem, I don't want to say ethical, it just didn't, it, I just didn't really see the big picture there. And so we ended up, you know, there were a bunch of these companies that were public were interested and we ended up selling to Ticketmaster, who was obviously the biggest and most well-known. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So now you have a new mission, which is to build the future of sports media over time. You bring it back to the people, talking about democratizing tickets, democratizing entertainment. Now it's democratizing sports media and the way the talent interacts with it. So you had a vantage point where you were looking at a lot of different businesses and uh, esports and, uh, and, and other things. And then you decided to throw down on over time. I remember even when you started over time, I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. But, uh, but um, you know, you built something enormous. I think you're getting over a billion views a month. Uh, there are probably a lot of people that are watching this. who are like, oh, yeah, I love overtime. So tell us about the mission of overtime and then its founding uh, and, and what's happened since. Because it's one of the most exciting growth stories in all of sports and media. Uh, well, well, I appreciate it. And, you know, it was it was all those stories you told me about the hooping you did while you were in law school. Uh, that, yes. You know, <laughs> the that, inspiration that for overtime right here. Um, so I, I had been uh, working at Endeavor, which is a global talent agency, which then was called William Morris Endeavor. Uh, and we had bought IMG, which was another three letter, but a big sports media company. So, so I found myself kind of working in digital and then essentially working in sports. And in about 2013, 2014, there was a narrative that was kind of inside of sports, but wasn't really in the press as much. And that narrative was, we're concerned about the next generation of viewers and sports fans. And why are we concerned? Number one, they're not watching three hour live games they're not watching television. They have an in, in, incredible alternatives for their time, social media, video games, watching Netflix on demand, watching Game of Thrones. Um, and, 
And the average age, I think, of almost every sport was somewhere, of the viewer was somewhere between mid-40s to mid-60s. And so, you know, being a being the digital guy, I would go and I would talk to different sports entities in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. and they'd say, we got to get the young viewer. We need the young viewer back. And, and, uh, and there were other trends, you know. I think you see in the NBA that people almost become more player loyal than team loyal. Like if they love LeBron, they'll follow LeBron from team to team versus being a diehard fan of X. Or you see more people who are fans of teams that have no correlation to the city that they grew up in because they discovered them playing Madden or 2K or they they had some other relationship or I just love this guy. You know, I have a friend who's from Atlanta. He's a Celtics fan. I'm like, how are you a Celtics fan? He's like, I just loved Ray Allen. Like that was my guy. Um, and, and so they would say, Dan, like, can you get all of these YouTube and Instagram stars you represent to basically come to a game, a Super Bowl, anything else like that and, and bring in the younger audience? And I thought like, sure, but I, I think the underlying product underneath is potentially hasn't changed quickly enough that that's just window dressing. It's not it's not going to change the, the interest level. A game of still going to be two, two and a half hours long, et cetera. Like yeah, I could have it's, it's still going to be. And, and, I, and look, I mean, I watched a lot of sports when I was a kid in the late 70s and the early 80s, and it really doesn't look that different than it looks today. Um, you know, there's a yellow line in football that wasn't there, but everything else is pretty much almost exactly the same. And to me, it's actually very soothing. It like brings me back to my childhood when I hear Marv Alpert talk and everything else like that. But I think for a different generation, um, it, it just was a little out of sync. And, and there were other things that, that were changing. I mean, they had cameras on their phones, they had all of these other things around them in life that were changing. Um, and, and this wasn't really changing. And I thought sports is an incredible vertical. There's an, an, so much passion. I mean, you know, we, we, we feel very passionate about our teams and the, the players that we care about and live sports is, and sports in general is something with unpredictable endings all of the time. And, uh, you know, th- this was a once in a lifetime opportunity to create essentially a different platform around sports for a different generation. And it, it required really understanding what this generation wanted. Now, it's no secret that I'm neither millennial or Gen Z. Um, so from my side, I understood how digital worked. You know, I had been essentially running an agency that had represented hundreds of YouTubers and Instagram and many digital stars. So I, I had a lot of insight uh, about that. I had a partner, Zach, who was my co-founder, who was 24 at the time. So he was more in that demographic. Uh, and together- yeah, Maybe we there's another like, lesson here. If you're like a 24-year-old, you got to find an old head like Dan Porter. Exactly. <laughs> Team up with them. Exactly. And so I, I just think we were like, if somebody was going to make the new ESPN for, for, for lack of a better kind of simple, easy comp, like, what would that look like? Would that be a cable channel running 24 hours, showing live games, having a bunch of people talking about trades all day, um, if that's not resonating with this next generation? Um, or would you use all the social platforms? Would you do all these different things? And, and, and so that was kind of where we started. And we really had three kind of things that we thought would make us special. You know, number one is we built technology from the very beginning. So all of the short form highlights, especially around basketball that you see on overtime are captured with our own software, our own camera software, which meant that if if you were in our network, if you downloaded our software, you we would have over a thousand people around the globe who we could send somewhere to capture content for us. It would be immediately uploaded to the cloud, tagged, we could distribute it. Uh, and that gave us a real advantage in terms of breadth and speed. Like we had a technological moat. Um, the second is we really wanted to build a brand. We wanted to people care about overtime. We sell millions of dollars of overtime hoodies and, 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 and apparel and shirts and stuff like that because people, we created something that, that resonated with people. And I don't think traditionally people have felt that way about media. They don't walk around with an ESPN shirt or a CNN shirt because that's just a vehicle for them to get information. I have a CNN shirt. 
I'm just there you go. Well, well, that, that's, your, that's your employer. So, uh, and the third was we really wanted to build around community. I mean, you know, from everything that that you've accomplished on Twitter and elsewhere, like having a strong community is, is really key. And so, you know, we went out and. I think there were probably 100,000 people who saw us in gyms in the first year, like in person with overtime shirts who had some experience. We answered a quarter of a million direct messages a year. We really built, we talked to people in the comments. We really built a strong sense of community. And those things came together to be just a totally different media platform, which we called overtime. So what does overtime look like today? You know, we have over a million followers in in men's basketball and women's basketball and football and gaming and lifestyle and soccer. We publish on every social platform. We have over 50 million followers. We have 50 different accounts across Snap and TikTok and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube that all essentially talk to each other. Um, and they're united by essentially a single brand. And that was very different than let's publish on television you know, who we talk, talked about was different. We followed kind of these athletes right before the, be, they became pro on their journey. We, we didn't really do a lot of criticism. We never ranked them. We never talked about trades. We never trashed athletes. Wow. Um, we just had a different perspective that I think we learned from partnering with our audience that really resonated with them. And so they might say, overtime and all the characters who are on overtime that's who we care about. And you guys care about, you know, you old people, you care about who your characters are and, and everything else like that. And so that that became a journey. And then obviously, as people who are 17 or 18 and now 22 and 23, they kind of stay in our universe and we're able to build big journey. And then we started, obviously, in the last year, adding an app, launching our own league. We're about to do a ton of stuff with name, image, likeness. We're about to create a whole subsidiary to focus on sports betting. Like now that we've built this brand and this community, we're able to keep branching out and, and, and creating entities that, that make sense for what our brand stands for at the core. Well, the, the newsmaker recently has been this league you speak of where you're recruiting young basketball players that are nationally ranked, um, they're high school age, uh, and they're getting paid early on. So they're foregoing what I think most people know. It's like, you know, amateur status. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of bullshit. <laughs> I know you didn't. You have a platform on your presidential position on the. Oh, yeah. Pay NCAA athletes. I mean, they're talking yeah. about like billion dollar franchises, but can't pay the talent. Like, you know, like they're yeah. getting an education. Like the whole thing was um, such bullshit. Um, and, and now the cat's out of the bag. I mean, like the, the name, image, and likeness stuff at the college level. Um, someone was joking about how much money Zion Williamson would have made in his one year at Duke if, he, <laughs> if he'd gotten a cut so of all that. So much money. Crazy. So much money. Um, so I, I am all for the fact that you all are paying uh, kids for their talents. Uh, you know, they are the value drivers. Um, but the, the first thing I thought when I saw this, I was like, like so you're going to create like this awesome high school team? Uh, and then I thought, uh, who are they going to play? And from what I could tell is they're going to play other awesome high school teams, which is fascinating. Um, so what what does this league look like? Yeah, so uh, let me step back one sense to, to say that um, part of the impetus is less about, I think people are attracted to the idea that we're paying the players, that they're becoming professional. Um, and, and that's an obvious hook for the story. But the reality is, is that athletic development in this country is kind of weird compared to the rest of the world. Like there's no high school sports anywhere else in the world. Like Messi just signed a big contract with Barcelona today, right? Messi didn't go to high school. He didn't play D1 at Duke. Like everywhere else in the world, people who have a special skill get to train for that skill and pursue that. O only in the United States, like do we have this kind of high school college sports system and only in sports, right? If you're an incredible violinist, you don't go D1 for violin to Kentucky, you know, you go to Juilliard and you do what you do. And so it became clear as athletes started to skip college and go play in Australia and elsewhere that there was a real need for alternatives. And I'm, I'm not gonna tell you that Overtime Elite is the only solution. I'm not even going to tell you that playing college is bad. It's great. It's amazing for so many people. 
I'm just going to say that for the benefit of people who are enormously talented in sport, it's really good for them to have options. It's good for them to yep. choose our option. It's good for them to choose. Like they should have choice. And that's the thing that they don't have now. And by the way, choice is like the most American thing. Um, and so that aspect for them was a huge impetus. And then for us, we're already covering all of these players. Um, and so the idea that they could essentially play in a league where we could essentially be in partnership with them uh, was hugely interesting. So the league is going to start with three teams. And then each year we're going to grow until we have five, six, seven, eight teams. We don't want to start with, you know, eight teams on day one because that's that's a lot. But we'll have three teams. We have our own venue uh, in Atlanta that we're building from the ground up. Those teams will play each other um, and they will also play uh, other elite high school teams in the United States and also internationally. So, you know, all the teams that you know for soccer, Real Madrid, Barcelona, they also actually have basketball programs that are academy programs that are the same way. Pau Gasol played there. Luka Doncic played there. Um, and, and to step one back to get into deep basketball, you know, three of the five kind of super all-stars, you know, uh, this year, you know, Giannis, Joel Embiid, Luca, like they all didn't play in, in the American college system. They all played internationally uh, and, and they developed in these academy systems, uh, which gives them almost an unfair advantage. You know, when we brought our first 10 athletes that we signed together, one of them, Jean Montero, who we signed, who's from the Dominican Republic, he had already been a pro. He's 17 or 18, but he had played in Spain for two years. And it was clear in the first five minutes that his development as a basketball player was was way more advanced. You know, we had guys who were top ranked, physically gifted, incredible basketball IQ. He had he had just had a different path of development and, and his ability to kind of look on the court and understand what was going on was more advanced. And that's the options that we want to give our players. So they'll they'll play a combination of internal and external. I like to call it like the Champions League, right? Like you play kind of in your own league and then you go and you play teams from other leagues. Um, and there'll be a probably a fall se- fall winter season and a spring season. Um, and they'll compete. And I don't want to give everything away, but we're going to do a couple things really differently. The way that fans involve, are involved is going to be really different. Some of our camera stuff is going to be really different. I think we're wow. going to be a really fun platform to do some experimentation in, you know, in increasing the, you know, how sports is consumed for our audience um, that is good. That's harder for any traditional league in any sport to do because there are many traditionalists who don't want to see a ton of change. Um, and so th- that we're not only going to create a dope league that's like really fun that our audience is going to love. We're going to try to push the envelope in a couple of things. And it doesn't mean we're going to have a five point shot, but it, it means all the things that I think surround the court, the way fans are involved, the way the game is called, the way the game is filmed, the way that, you know, all of those things happen. You're going to see a lot of innovation from us. All available on overtime. So fun. Uh, and it, it makes intuitive sense to me that an athlete would develop better in uh, a professional style environment than if you're like the most dominant kid on your high school team, you develop some bad habits. <laughs> and- yeah, I, I think the, the other thing is right now, if you're really good at something, look, if you're really good at acting or music, you tend not to go to high school and you do what you do and they build the education thing around you. That that just doesn't happen to be true in sport with a couple of exceptions around the Olympics. Um, you know, I don't think Michael Phelps was sitting in 11th grade in the back of a class for some 45 minute class, like listening to somebody drone on. Um, and so for us, we're doing the same thing. Like every person in our program will get a high school degree. They'll get it from us. We're just going to build the education aspect around their ability to train, um, and to learn basketball. It's going to be individually, uh, delivered. And, you know, there's a ton of research that shows on kind of one-on-one instruction. People learn at two to three times the speed they do when they sit in a large class. Um, and there's a massive opportunity to teach athletes and young people about so many other things. You know, the history of sport, activism, financial literacy, how to manage your money, how to, you know, what charities you should contribute to, emotional regulation, 
um, you know, anger management, mental health. There's so many things like that that we think that the people will leave our program. They'll have an elite education. They'll have an elite kind of life skills education, and they'll have an elite basketball education. And I believe like NBA teams are going to see players like they've never seen before. Wow. The future of sports, the future of media, the future of education, maybe. <laughs> I hope so. No, no, so excited for you and proud of you. Um, so as someone who's been building the future that the rest of us have been experiencing, like what do you see coming down the pike, either in your field or generally? I mean, you're clearly way ahead of the curve in terms of um, entertainment uh, and uh, and media, but and you also have kids who are, uh, you know, like in their uh, like early 20s uh, or, or so. I'm sure you pick their brains all the time. Um, <laughs> what, like what, what's coming down the pike that either you're excited about or concerned about? Um, I would say to me, it, it, it's definitely interesting that this kind of generation of, of kind of college kids and kids right out of college are, are the most socially aware and active generation that I think I've ever seen. Like real Pat, I, I, I teach a social entrepreneurship class at NYU that you came and lectured at. Um, and I think that it's so it's so clear that they have passion about food waste and about, you know, composting and recycling and climate and all of these things that are incredibly diverse. So I, I think that that generation, you know, which is technologically savvy and is very passionate about the world is going to have a big impact. They're a big, you know, numerically they're, they're a big generation. Um, so I think there's that. I think that it's interesting to see what changes are going to hold over from the pandemic about how much time we spend in the office. I like to talk about, here, here's an example, like I, I hate QR codes. Like I never use QR codes. I never understood them. And then as we tried to get out of the pandemic, you would go out to dinner, right? And they'd be like, oh, we can't give you a menu because nobody can touch anything. And so you'd hold up your phone and you'd kind of like take a picture and the, the menu would pop up and... And that was a big revelation. Now do you, now do you love QR codes? <laughs> I kind of do, but it's funny. You know what pops up is a PDF of the menu. Like, why doesn't it tell me this was ordered two minutes ago? You know, this is the most popular dish. Oh, your friend ate here? They like this dish. Like, I think there's a lot of potential innovation around there. Similarly, you know, we're trying to figure out, is everybody going to come back to our office? I have 100 people in New York. Are they going to come back three days? Are they going to come back one day? What is that going to look like? I have to buy all of these pods because some people are in and some people are Zooming. So I think the nature of how we experience the world and the nature of work kind of impacted by these two big forces, this very socially conscious generation, and then the accelerated kind of rethink of things like work by the pandemic, I think are going to change, uh, are going to change a lot. What doesn't change is that there's an enormous amount of power, as you know, as a politician that is still held by older generations. There's an enormous amount of unequal power where a small number of people control an excess number of Senate seats that cause us to resist change in a lot of different ways. Um, and I don't know where that's going climate wise, voting rights wise and everything else like that. But there's no doubt that, you know, here's a generation of people who can make, you know, cinema and music with their phones, right? Who can create things on TikTok, who can storytell in a different way, who can learn in a different way. The number of people that work for me that never majored in video or film that learned editing by watching YouTube videos is, is astronomical and they continue to learn that way. So those are some of the things that I look going forward to the future that I'm interested and excited about. You know what's fun, Dan, and you caught that in that last message of yours, but like you're, you and I are now kind of battle-hardened vets, like you're in your 50s, I'm in your 40s, but you instinctively, when you were talking just now, are like on the side of young people, you know, like <laughs> you're, you're very young at heart. Maybe it's, um, it, it's the way you build your career, but that, that's certainly something I aspire to as well. Like I, I, I want to be someone who helps build a bridge to the future and then gets the fuck out of the way. <laughs> well, I think the older we get, um, 
the more we learn we're not supposed to take risks. And I think the risks, whether they're creative risks or personal risks, are sometimes the things that like cause us to move forward. Um, and so young people, sometimes me as a young person, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to take those risks. And so I took those risks, but that that's where a lot of that change and, and progress comes from, especially in business and, and other places. And so to me, that's always exciting. Like people coming into the world and saying, why does it have to be this way? Um, you know, it, it's like, I, I think about, you know, the other classic example in my class at NYU, oh, I'm gonna major in English. And somebody's parent says, what are you gonna do with an English degree, be an English teacher? And I tell the students, you know, what you do in life has so little to do with your major. None of you guys have any idea what my major was. It's so irrelevant. You're just here to like meet people and learn. And that's like mind blowing to them. Um, but the fact is like anything is possible. And I think ultimately young people really um, personify that kind of belief. And I get a lot of energy from that. Now you, you've taken big swings at every stage of your career, Dan. It's something that uh, I think people should do more of. Because like you said, when we get older, it gets a little bit harder to take those big swings. I mean, uh, it's something that I, I try to, to do as well. I try and think, okay, let me take on something that if I succeed, it will be actually meaningful and impactful. <laughs> I'll, I'll be proud. Like, uh, as opposed to like, if I succeed, no one's really going to give a shit. <laughs> no, you, I mean, you've taken some big swings too. I remember when you told me you were going to run for president and I said, of what? And you said uh, of the United States and that look that that's a it's a big swing. And I think that we tend to be very short sighted or binary in that like, well, OK, Andrew ran for president, but he didn't become president. And I think when you zoom back in the scheme of history, you know, the impact that we'll all have to move things forward to inspire other people to think differently, to galvanize the way people think about using social media, to galvanize the way people think about politics. Like all of those are massive contributions that have nothing to do with the end, you know, the end goal. So if I think about like even in the tiny world of sports and in the tinier world of basketball, like if we're successful at changing the way people think about how we develop athletes, whether overtime elite ever is as big as the NBA or not, like we're all making these kind of small contributions to pushing it forward. And, you know, people on the outside get very hung up on like, well, did you create a billion dollar business or didn't you? Did you win or did you lose? And, and in fact, just the process of doing that um, is massively beneficial to inspiring other people, to changing the narrative, to changing the way people think. Well, you've done more than your fair share of that, Dan. I'm going to close on what you said to me after you said president of what. <laughs> but then, but then you, you, said, you said, you know, Andrew, uh, I, I bet against you once, I'm never going to do it again. Whatever you do, like I, I'm all in. Uh, that, that's the kind of person you are. Um, so grateful to, to be your friend. Uh, and congratulations on building really the, the future of sports and media. Uh, I can't wait to get to Atlanta and watch a game. Uh, I'm excited to have you there and I will come back at you to say, Andrew, you are one of the most relentlessly optimistic people I know. And I always benefited by your jolt of optimism that like anything was possible. Uh, so I also appreciate you a great deal for that. Um, we'll get you courtside, uh, with the family. Yeah, yes. I'll put it out to the Yang Yang. It'll be fun. Yeah, at, at, uh, at OTE and, and, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Of course, all the best to the family. Thanks so much, Dan.